listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Well, good morning. Good morning. Hope you are doing well. As you have a seat, let me introduce myself. My name is Clint. If we haven't had the chance to meet or maybe you're new to the church since Easter, I am not Bill, okay? And... I've said that three times now, every time people laugh. It's not a joke, it's just facts. I'm not Bill, I don't understand what's so funny. All right, um, Exodus chapter 15, Exodus 15. If you've been here with us this year, you know we've been preaching through this book, the book of Exodus, that's the second book of the Bible. And where we are in the story is actually a huge pivot point in the story, here's what I mean. One to 15, chapters one to 15, is all about God getting his people out of Egypt. And then 16 through the rest of the book, all the way to chapter 40, is about God getting Egypt out of his people. And what's unique about chapter 15 is that the majority of what we're going to see, and we'll read it in a bit, it's a song, right? So this is Moses and Israel. These are actually lyrics to a song that they sing to God. And we're going to talk about what they sing and why they sing here in Exodus 15. But before we do that, I want us to consider together, why do we sing? Like, why do we do what we just did? Why are we gonna do it again in a bit? Why is singing such a significant part of who we are as Christians and what we do when we gather together on Sunday morning? Because to be honest, it's pretty unique. Like, where else were you gathered in a room like this, all different people, ages, you know, genders, backgrounds, all different socioeconomic statuses, we come in a room, we stand here, we look at a screen, we sing songs. Like, where else do you do? I mean, it's kind of like a concert, but it's different, right? Where else? Do you experience this? And if you didn't grow up in church, and maybe you're checking out the whole Jesus thing, this is, what we just did was weird. I get it. It's unique, it's strange. If you felt any of that, you're not alone, right? So why do we do it? And I know for some of you, you love to sing, all right? You love it. You wish we would preach shorter sermons so that we could sing more. Probably not gonna happen, but you should send Bill an email. Uh, You'll see what happens, okay? But You wish we would preach shorter so we could sing more. Others of you, though, the singing for you, that's just what the other people do so that you don't miss anything when you come in late. All right, it's just the the, the warm-up for the important stuff that starts when you get there, right? So why do we sing? Why do we do this? Well, maybe this will help us. My son, Brooks, he just turned three years old at the beginning of the month. Um, and when, before you have a kid or you know, when someone gets pregnant, people feel the reason to give you unsolicited parenting advice out of nowhere. Like you're just walking around in the grocery store and someone's gonna come up and start to tell you how to parent your kid that's not even born yet. One of the things they always told us was, hey, watch out for the two-year-olds. Two-year-olds you gotta watch out for. Terrible twos, you've heard this. For us, three-year-olds, okay? Two-year-olds, compliant, great kids, they turn three, it's a problem, right? People call him a three-nager. That's what happens. Um, he's not three yet. One, <laughs> one day this week, we were um, in the yard playing after work when, we got, when I got home, all of us out there playing. And Brooks, again, you gotta keep an eye on him. He decides, I'm gonna go in the house, okay? So we, I'm watching him, just keeping an eye on him. He goes in the house, I'm, seeing, I'm thinking he's gonna come out with a toy and just you know, be playing with it. A couple minutes pass, he comes back out, no toy. So immediately I'm concerned, okay? Because what was he doing in there? So I run over, assess the situation, go over, look at his face. It takes no time, I figure out what he was doing because his face is covered with powdered sugar. All right, so I figured out, we know what was happening while he was in there. So I asked him the question, what you expect? Hey, buddy, when you were in the house, did you eat a donut? No. Okay, 
I'm pretty sure you did because your face is covered with white stuff, right? So now, you would I, I actually respected it that he went and did it, but because he lied to me, now you're in trouble, okay? So now you have to go to your room, so I send him in the house, go in the room, wait a few minutes, and I go in there, um, can't find him, don't know where he is, call his name, Brooks, he's behind his chair, which is not abnormal, he does that when he goes and pouts, he goes and sits in the corner, you know, behind the chair. So I call his name, kid you not, he pokes his head out, he's eating another donut. What in the world, right? So I'm trying to be mad because of his just, just overt rebellion against me and the leadership of my home. Um, but I go over there and I ask him, hey buddy, uh, when I sent you into your room to, for time out for eating a donut and then lying about it, did you get another donut to eat? No. Okay, I know you did. Why did you do that? I don't know. All right, well, why did you lie about it and go get another one? Because. Fair enough. I don't know, because, right? That was his answer, and that's silly and, and may be a waste of your time, but the reason why I share that with you is because I think that the majority of us, if I push comes to shove and I ask you the question, why do we sing? When we come in here and we gather together, why is singing such a significant part of what we do? Why do we sing songs of God? I don't know, because. I really don't know that we know the answer, and and what I want us to see today is not only is there a better answer to that question, we need one. If we're gonna follow Jesus the way that God has called us to do so, we need a better answer. And that's what Exodus 15 is gonna give us today. So before we look at the song specifically, I think it's helpful to know the background of the song. Have you ever had a song that you just loved? It's your jam, right? That comes on the radio, if you even have one of those anymore, it comes on, you turn it up immediately, window down, elbow out, right? This is just your, your jam and, and you, Love it, but you found out the background of the story and you knew the, the, found out what was going on in the artist's life when they wrote it and why they wrote it and what inspired it and you just love it that much more. That's what I wanna give you here, the background of the song. When the book of Exodus begins, Israel is in Egypt, right? But they're not initially slaves, right? They're guests. Maybe you remember the story of Joseph. He's the, the youngest of 12 brothers. His brothers hate him because their daddy loves him the most. And so they fake his death. That actually happens. They sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt where he becomes second in command to Pharaoh at the time. And when you hear Pharaoh, you just think king. Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. So while he's there, Joseph, second in command, king of Egypt, this famine breaks out, right? No food in all the land except for because of Joseph, there's food in Egypt. So people are coming from all over to Egypt to get food so they don't starve to death. Think of it like this. It's Saturday morning, there's a hurricane coming and you're going to Sam's, all right? That's what's happening here. Everybody from all over the planet, they move their way into Sam's and they get their grocery cart and they stand in line. And what are they doing? We need toilet paper and bottled water and we need it bad. That's what all these people were doing as they come to Egypt they're waiting there, um, and Joseph's brothers, his family are there, but what they didn't know is Joseph is the one with keys to the Sam's Club. He's got what they need. So they end up moving, the whole family moves to Egypt so that Joseph can provide for them and take care of them. Joseph's dad, his name was Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to what? Israel. That's why God's people are called the Israelites, right? So God, uh, or, or the Israelites are in Egypt, they're initially guests, but then they begin to multiply. They begin to do what God tells them to do, the cultural mandate, to be fruitful and multiply. They do, they become so big, it's estimated there's two to three million of them at this point in Egypt. A new Pharaoh comes up, he says, these people aren't an asset, they're a drain on our resources. He begins to oppress them, he enslaves them. 
God raises up a man named Moses to deliver his people. One day, Moses sees a, a, an Egyptian hitting or beating up on a Hebrew man, so he takes matters into his own hands and he goes and he kills the guy, okay? Tries to cover it up, Pharaoh finds out. Moses ends up running for his life into the wilderness because Pharaoh finds out and wants him dead. So he's a, a felon, wanted for murder, running for his life. He goes into the, the desert, spends 40 years there. That's not hyperbole, 40 years in the desert, uh, taking care of sheep in obscurity, and there he learns to trust God. In Exodus chapter three, God shows up to Moses and he says, hey, I want you to go back to Egypt, go back to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go. Moses, as you would expect, has doubts, all right? He has concerns and he has questions. Primarily, his question is, okay, assuming I do that, assuming I do go back to the man who wants me dead to tell him to let his two to three million slaves go, assuming I did that, who would I tell him sent me? Basically, who's the Lord? That's what he's asking. And Exodus 1 to 14 is devoted to answering this question, who is God? It's God revealing in these 14 chapters that we've already covered, who is God? He's revealing it to the Israelites and to the Egyptians. And if you remember the first conversation that Moses has with Pharaoh, he shows up and he's, again, uh, this is uh, just kind of a paraphrase. He says, hey man, God said you need to let the Israelites go. And how does, Mo, or how does Pharaoh respond? He says, chapter five, verse two, who is the Lord that I, King Pharaoh, King of Egypt, should obey his voice and let him go? Who is he? And God answers his question with 10 miracles that we call plagues. And these plagues, plagues systematically dismantle the theological system of the Egyptians. So remember they had all those lowercase g gods, the Nile God, the, the God of the sun and the moon, the frog God, right? On and on we could go. They had all these gods and what God's doing in the plagues is he's answering the question, who is the Lord? By showing them that they aren't, they aren't gods at all. That I, Yahweh, am the only God, the one who reveals that all other gods are frauds. And so each of these plagues, they increase in severity and they increase in cost on the Egyptian people until it ultimately culminates in what we call the Passover, the 10th plague, that because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, it continues to build in severity on the Egyptian people and we get the Passover, which it means that in, 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 if the blood of the lamb wasn't spread on the doorpost, then a single person, the, the firstborn from each home, would die. Uh, and that's what we call the Passover. And the Passover decimates Egypt. Exodus 12, verse 30, Pharaoh rose up in the night. He wakes up, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, so loud that it wakes everyone up, for there was not a single house where not someone was dead. The Passover forces Pharaoh to finally let Israel go. Again, two to three million of them now are delivered out of Egypt, out from underneath oppression and slavery under Pharaoh. God leads them into the wilderness into what is essentially a geographical cul-de-sac where the Red Sea's in front of them. You got mountains and impassable terrain on either side and all of a sudden they look around and go, we're trapped, right? We're stuck here. God leads them there and when Pharaoh hears that that's where they are, he has a, the Bible says a change of heart. Basically, he changes his mind because of his anger. He looks around going, look at what they've done to us. They've plundered us. We are, uh, have lost someone in every single one of our families. He said, forget this. Let's go kill them. So he takes basically the most highly trained of the Egyptian army and rides towards the Israelites, and the people do exactly what we would do. They see him coming, and they freak out. And they spiral, and they think, this is it. This is the day that we die. This is the end. But God tells Moses, I want you to take your staff, stretch it out over the Red Sea, and divide it. 
And that's what he does. And as the sea splits, the people of Israel pass through on dry ground, the Bible says, with a wall of water on his left and a wall of water on the right. Pharaoh and his army see this. And at this point, they should know, we're in over our heads. Pun intended, right? They should know this is a fight that we are not going to win, but they, because of the hardness of their hearts, they go in after him and they learn once and for all the answer to their question, who's the Lord? Chapter 14, verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back on the Egyptians upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And with that, the ocean collapses on the Egyptians. Not a single one of them survives. Verse 30 of chapter 14, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Can you feel that? They are on the beach and washing up in front of them are the bodies of the Egyptians, their enemy. Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And the reason why I took that much time giving you the background of the song is because I want you to be able to put yourself on that beach. One moment you're thinking, this is it. This is the day that we all die. And before you know it, before you've even realized what's happening, you've gone through, you're standing on the other side and the bodies of your enemy are laid at your feet. And how do they respond? Chapter 15, verse one, then Moses and the people of Israel, they sang this song to the Lord. They sing. Their response to all of this was to sing to the Lord. But the question that we need to answer is why? Why do they sing? The short answer is they sing because 1430 says they saw. They saw what God had done. They saw the power. They saw that God had saved them. They sing because they had been saved and saved people love to sing. Chapter 14, verse 31 says, they saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people did what? They feared the Lord and they believed in him. They saw the Lord's power. Other translations would say that they saw the work that God had done with their own eyes, but they didn't just see it, right? They experienced it. They felt the fear as the Egyptians bore down on them, as they were coming toward them. They felt awe as they saw the waters begin to part. This room's a great image. Just think about that wall of water. They're like, what the? What's going on, right? And they're passing through. They felt the ground under their feet as they walked through what just moments ago was an ocean. And as they got to the other side, they watched as those walls of water collapsed on their enemies and God lay their enemies at their feet. They saw it and they experienced the power of the Lord firsthand. The Bible says they feared the Lord and they believed him. No longer were they afraid of the Egyptians, were they? Why? Because that fear had been replaced with a greater fear a fear of the Lord, which means they were in absolute awe of God and the Bible says they believed him, which means they trusted him with their lives because this is how you respond when you see God for who he really is. You fear him, you believe, and you trust. When you see and experience for yourself that God is bigger, he's stronger than you ever thought possible, that he is not tame or safe, when he no longer fits into the box that you put him in and he's not manageable or able to be controlled, when you see that God is actually God, it reminds you that you're not. And when we experience the godness of God, it reorients our hearts and our minds around what is our place in this world. He's God, I'm not. What is my place when we see who he really is? And 
This song in chapter 15, it flows out of an experience for the Israelites where they saw God for who he was. They weren't wondering about who's in control here. God is God, we are not. And what do they do? They sing. And again, why? They sing because he saved them. They're singing to God because of who he is and what he's done. And this is the same reason why we sing. We sing in here on Sunday mornings because of who our God is and what he has done for us. So what I wanna do is look at this song that the Israelites sing and, and, and think together, how should this shape the way that we sing on Sunday mornings? We sing because of who God is and what he's done, but how should this inform the way we sing? Look at verse one. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The first thing I want you to see is how verse one starts. Before the song even begins, what's the first word of verse one? Then. Then they sang, right? Which means that first and foremost, our worship, our singing to God, it's a response to him. Singing is a response to God for who he is and what he's done. And that means it doesn't start with us, it starts with him. Which means that we don't come into this room hoping that we've done enough or been good enough throughout the week and we come into this room and we're pretty enough and we sing songs that are good enough to get God to earn his love and approval or to get him to do what we want him to do. It doesn't start with us, it starts with him. Our God initiates and then he invites us to come to him. And who is responding here in Exodus 15? Moses and the people. This means they're all singing. Okay, so when verse one says, I will sing to the Lord, that's not Moses doing some Whitney Houston run in his falsetto and then everyone else going, man, that is amazing. Okay, that's not what's happening here. They all sang to the Lord, all of Israel responding to God and worship through song, which means that not only is our singing a response to God for who he is and what he's done, it's corporate. Our singing is corporate, which means we do it together. That's why it's important for you to be in the room, that we do it together because it unifies us. It connects us with one another as we sing these songs to God. Imagine the unity and even just the sheer volume of two to three million people ascribing worth and praise and glory to God. We got like 300 people in here and that was awesome. Imagine two to three million. The closest thing I could think to compare it to and then this pales in comparison, but it's a college football stadium. Right, you, maybe you've experienced this before. Men, women, children, people of all different ages, they're together, they're cheering, they're clapping, they're shouting, right? And, and if you've experienced this before, you know at times it can be deafening. And here's the thing, I love college football, okay? Go dogs. But if we can get that excited about what kids, 18 to 22 year old kids do with a ball on a Saturday, how different should our gatherings be on Sunday? Right? And here's the thing. No one has to convince you, convince you to participate in a football game that you care about. You ever seen a Georgia fan, just they score a touchdown, he's just. No. No, not even one time. This one time, I'm, this is, I'm not making this up. This guy and his girlfriend in front of us, his girlfriend breaks up with him either right before the game or at the game, I'm not sure. And the whole time, he's just sad, man. Just sitting in his chair, he's just having a bad day, okay? Jordan scored a touchdown, even he cheered, okay? <laughs> not one time. And the point I'm making is in a similar way, our singing is corporate. 
which doesn't necessarily mean you gotta get up and jump around and wave your arms up and down, but what it does mean is from the scriptures, it means that you should participate. That if you've been saved by Jesus, then you should love to sing, that you should participate in corporately together, ascribing in response, worship and glory to God. And so what happens is we come to this gatherings like this and we think about singing as if the band, they're the givers. Not a great word, but it's the best I could come up with. They're performing, they're the ones doing the giving, they're working. We, the congregation, we're the audience, we're receiving their work, they're giving to us, and God makes it happen. That's how we think about it. But in reality, if worship is corporate and it's a response to God, then it's opposite. We respond to God, which means he's the audience. We give to him, we are the congregation. We're the ones doing the giving, doing the work of giving our worship, our praise to God. He receives it and the band is the one who, the whole reason they're here is to help make it happen. And it's the reason why I'm up here doing this and not what Chris just did, all right? Because it wouldn't sound good. It wouldn't help you very much, right? Our singing is corporate. It's a response to God, but it's not just corporate. It's also personal, personal. Every single one of them is declaring what? I will sing to the Lord. I will. And the original language, you might have a different translation that might say, I must. I must sing to the Lord. Why? It says here, because he has triumphed gloriously. Because he saved me. Do you see how intensely personal this is? It's not, we will sing because he has saved us, although that's true. It's, I will sing because he has saved me, because I stood on the other side of the Red Sea with the enemy bearing down on me, because I felt the fear and I thought this was in, because I thought all hope was lost, I passed through the water. And because now I stand on the other side and I look back and see what God has done for me, I must sing. It's intensely personal. Look at verse one again. The horse and rider he's thrown into the sea, he says, the Lord is my strength. He is my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. Our singing is beautifully corporate, but it's also intensely personal. Verse three says, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord or Yahweh is his name, right? The Bible just said here, your version might say the Lord is a warrior. The Lord's a, that's a weird thing to sing, right? The Lord is a man of war. Why would they sing that? Why would it be good news for them to sing that God is a warrior? It's good news to them because they knew up close and personal they had an enemy they couldn't defeat. And this song is just like the song of the Christian that we know that we have an enemy that we have no shot at defeating. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. This is what they mean in verse two when they sing, the Lord is my strength. He's our strength because we know we're not strong enough. Right, our, our enemy is the same way. We have no shot against them, only our enemy is not Egypt. It's Satan, sin, and death. And this is why we sing songs like we sang earlier, that I would be hopeless without your goodness. I would be, right, desperate without your love. Without the intervention of God and his strength on our behalf, we would still be slaves to the darkness if it wasn't for the cross. If it wasn't for what Jesus has accomplished for us, we would still be there, but we're not, so I must sing. Our singing is a response to God for who he is and what he's done. It's beautifully corporate, it's intensely personal because God in his strength has defeated our greatest enemy. And when we read this here in a second, you'll see more, but this song feels a little bit morbid. 
over and over and over again. He just talks about the death of the Egyptians. The Egyptians died, the Egyptians died. Here, read this, verse four. Pharaoh's chariots, his hosts, he, God, cast them into the sea. His chosen officers sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, what'd you do? You overthrew your adversaries. You sent out your fury, consumed them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods, floods stood in the heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide, my desire shall have its fill, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them, but you blew with your wind, and the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Over and over again, it's, a, it's really a, like a morbid song, right? But it's not a sad song. Over and over again, you cast them into the sea, they sank like stone, you shattered the enemy. It says you consumed them like stubble. There's a bit of irony there with that word stubble. You see it in Exodus chapter five when Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, hey, listen, God says let his people go. He goes, no way. He doubles down in oppressing the Israelite slaves and what's he do? He makes them gather their own straw to make bricks. That word stubble is the same word straw. And then here in Exodus 15, the Israelites are singing this victorious song and they're saying the enemy, he thought he was in control making us gather stubble to make straw and make bricks, but guess what? You consume them like straw. Verse 10, the sea covered them. They sink like lead in the mighty waters. Over and over again, they sing about the death of the Egyptians. And again, it seems morbid. So my response when I read this was we get it. I get it, the Egyptians died. Do you have to keep singing about it over and over and over again? How do you think they would answer that question? Yes. They already did. They said, I must sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. Their point is, yes, we have to keep singing about it because our enemy has been defeated. Because he's been laid at our feet. What else could I possibly desire to sing about, right? Our singing is a response to God for who he is and what he's done. It's beautifully corporate, intensely personal. Look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? who is like you, majestic in holiness? This is the answer to the question, who is the Lord? The answer is he's, he's not like anyone else. The song says he's my strength, he's my song, he's my salvation, he's my God, he's a man of war, he's glorious in power, majestic in holiness, Yahweh is his name. Verse 18 says the Lord will reign forever and ever. Yahweh. The one true God of the universe, he will reign forever and ever. He's king. He was king yesterday. He'll be king tomorrow. He was king from the beginning. He'll be king in the end. He will reign forever and ever. In my life and in yours, whether we like it or not, the Lord will reign forever and ever. This is why we sing, to respond to God for who he is and what he's done. And you could say, but why do we need to sing? Couldn't we just speak the lyrics and wouldn't that be enough to move us to worship? Well, yes, we could. But there's something powerful about the convergence of music and melody. And when they come together, they help us bring the truth about God out of our minds and sink it down, sink it down deep into our hearts. When we sing, it takes the truth about God from our heads and it plants it in the soil of our heart that it might bear fruit for the kingdom of God. I heard a pastor say one time that songs, they are sermons that people actually remember. And that stings a little bit, okay? As a guy who spends a lot of time preparing and preaching sermons, but it's true. That songs are sermons that people actually remember. And, and I hope it's not that you've just been hearing bad sermons your whole life, although maybe, 
right? Hopefully not here. It's songs or sermons that people remember because something powerful happens around music and melody. How many, how many songs do you have remembered from 10 years ago or more? Hadn't heard them in forever. That thing comes on and you, mm, you know it, right? And not only that, it transports you back to where you were when that song made an impact in your life and you remember who your friends were and what your favorite food, all these random memories flood us in. That is the power of music and melody. They converge together to take truth and things out of our head and sink it down into our hearts and sear it into our souls. Singing the truth about God, who he is and what he's done, it has the power from moving us from just knowing that he's God to believing that it's true that it actually changes your life. I wanna give you just a couple, I don't have a ton of time, just a couple of things of the ways this changes our life. Look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Verse 12, you stretch out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. So God, you stretch out your hand and the earth swallows them. But wait a minute, we just read, I thought Moses stretched his hand out. Well, he did, but did you notice that not one time in this song is Moses' name mentioned, and the reason why, this song makes clear, the Israelites knew who deserved worship in this equation. Don't forget, Moses is singing this song too, not the Whitney Houston falsetto, but he's with them. He's singing this song too. This was a guy who remembered what it, what it felt like to stand at the edge of the Red Sea and lift his staff and watch it obey. He remembered that he did that he just knew he wasn't the one who did that. Does that make sense? He remembered that he was the one who stood and lifted his hand and stretched it out and the sea collapsed on the Egyptian army. He remembered that he did it, but he knew that God was the one who did it through him. He knew that God was the one who deserved the worship. And what I want you to see in this is that when we gather together to sing songs, when we sing songs to God, it reminds us that God has invited us in that God has invited us to participate in the work that he's doing in the world. Let me explain this for you. You know God didn't need Moses to lift his staff to split the Red Sea, right? He didn't need him, he could have just done it. The song says, verse eight, at the blast of your nostrils the water piled up, the flood stood up in a heap. Which means that God didn't even need to blow to make it happen, he just, so glad nothing came out right there, right? God didn't even need, like Moses, he didn't even need just to breathe out of his nose to make this happen, but what did he do? He invited him in. And imagine what that would have felt like to be Moses in that situation and go, man, how powerful is my God and how good is he that he invites me to participate. He could have done it without me, but he's invited me in. God didn't need the Israelites to walk through the Red Sea. He could have just picked them up, put them over there. But what did he do? Part of the waters and he sent them through so that they could walk through, look around and go, oh my God. He deserves my worship. He is king forever and ever. God invites us to participate in the work that he's doing in the world. And when you and I come into this room and we sing songs together about the bigness of our God, it has a way of getting our eyes off of our own circumstances and seeing who our God is and remembering he's invited us in. This is what we mean when we say every Sunday, go and be the church, right? Go, what are you gonna do tomorrow? You're gonna get up and you're gonna go and do whatever the work has work you have to do, whether it's school or whatever. You're gonna go to work and you're gonna go with this mentality, which means it's not just a job because God's invited you in. God's invited you to participate in the work he's doing in the world. It's not just a paycheck. It's an opportunity to make much of Jesus where he's planted you. 
in those relationships and with those people and in that work and cultivating with your hands, it's not just a job. It's not just a classroom or a sports team. It's an opportunity to participate in the work that God has called you to do and what he's doing in the world with those people to respond for who God is and what he's done. We get to do that in those spaces in the way that we play, in the way that we interact with our teammates. It means it's not just a house that God's given you to live in. It's an opportunity to engage your neighbors with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God has planted you on that street, in that apartment, in that place for a reason because there are people around you who do not right now believe that there is a God. The story of the scripture, that God created a people for himself, we rebelled against him and he's made a way for us to be brought back into right relationship with him through his son, the personal work of Jesus, the man who died the death that we deserve, who rose again so that we could have life abundantly. It's not just a house. It's an opportunity to engage people with the truth about who our God is and what he's done. And songs have a way of reminding us that God's the point and we're not, and he's invited us to participate. Which changes our perspective a little bit, doesn't it? When you can get there in your head, it changes your perspective. Here's an example. If your kitchen, your actual kitchen, if you have one, if it is an opportunity from God, a gift from him that's given to you to engage the people around you with the good news of the gospel, then does it really matter what kind of countertops you have? And man, I'm not saying it's bad to have nice things or to have nice countertops, it's not. But does it really matter when that perspective changes? I got a good one for you, you ready? This one hits home, the game of golf, which is a great gift from God to all of humanity, including me. If golf is a gift from God to be enjoyed, that reminds me that he's good, that he created a game and he created the trees and land and people's minds to be able to create the game. If, if that's what it is, and it's an opportunity to engage the people that I'm playing with, with the good news of the gospel about who our God is and what he's done, then does it really matter that you miss the putt? And we can apply this to any area of our lives. It, it re, singing songs about the bigness of God remind us God's invited us to participate in the work that he's doing in the world. Let me give you one more. Verse 14. The peoples have heard. They tremble and pangs or sorrow has seized the inhabitants of Philistia. And now the chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as stone. We've heard that before. We'll come back to it. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you've purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which you have, your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. It's interesting, they sing this here, and again, remember, this is a song. They're singing to God, verses 14 to 16, they're singing about the future. Remember, they're still on the beach at the Red Sea, which God has brought them out of Egypt, and he has not yet given them the promised land, which is the land of Canaan. If you didn't grow up in church, God makes a promise in Genesis 17 to a man named Abraham, and he says, I'm gonna give you a land, a land for your people to dwell in. It's the land of Canaan. This is the same land they're singing about here, as if it's already happened. It hasn't happened yet. They're singing as if the future has, is so secure They're singing about it as if it's already happened, right? Verse 15, all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Not yet, they haven't, but they're saying they will be. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. And this stone language is significant because we see it earlier in verse four of the song. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts came into the sea. Verse five, the floods covered them and they go down into the depths like a stone. 
So God defeats Egypt, their greatest enemy. How? They sink like a stone, and then here they are frozen like a stone because God will defeat them. That's what they're singing here, right? Israel knew, here's the point, that if God can be trusted then, he can be trusted now. If God can be trusted to defeat their greatest enemy, Egypt, then they had no reason to be afraid of Edom and Moab. The future is secure, right? And this is the second thing that singing songs to God remind us is true in our lives, that God can be trusted. If God can be trusted to defeat our greatest enemy, Satan, sin, and death, if he can overcome all of that by the blood of Jesus Christ, by an occupied cross and an empty tomb, if he could do that, if he could be trusted then, he can be trusted now, right? Verse 13 says, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. So God leads Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness, as we said, to a trap, essentially. And they are freaking out. They're going, God doesn't know what he's doing. They're complaining, they're grumbling. They're going, this God, he's brought us out here to die in the wilderness. Why did we even leave Egypt? We should go back to our slavery. They're complaining, grumbling, they're stuck, they're trapped, we're gonna die, all these things. But then here they sing, about the same day that it was your steadfast love that led us there. Why? Because now they know how good God is. Because now they've seen him show up. They've seen him defeat their greatest enemy because they walked through the sea. They stood on the other side and their enemies were laid at their feet. They got to see and experience firsthand how God would save and sustain them through it. And friends, this is why we should sing even when we don't feel like it. Even when we don't feel like it. So we can remember that our God can be trusted regardless of how much it may seem that our life is falling around, falling apart around us. We sing songs to God, we remember he can be trusted. Be trusted then, he can be trusted now. The first four years of, uh, four and a half really, of Mary Elizabeth and I's marriage, we struggled with infertility. And I, I've shared this before in the past, but some of you may not have heard this. Um, I can honestly say it was one of the most deeply painful and yet confusing times of my life as a, a, both a potential perspective, hopeful father and yet a husband. And, and to see, you know, despite what people said to her and despite how we try to encourage her, just, just to day in and day out, try to help her deal with, the, with, regardless of what people said, she just believed, I'm probably never gonna be a mother. Just a painful place to be and to live. And that was the first, what's what kind of marked the first four and a half years of our life, this constant cycle of hope and disappointment and hope and disappointment and treatments and doctors and hope and disappointment. Um, and like I said, it was tough and, and, then, and then one day we found out we were pregnant. And it was a Tuesday and I remember that specifically because I remember that on Friday of that same week, Mary Elizabeth wakes me up in the middle of the night screaming because she's cramping, bleeding and we rushed to the ER. And so, hope and disappointment, and then hope, the Lord heard our cries, and now disappointment. And we get there to the ER, and they really crassly and unfortunately said, yeah, you're having a miscarriage. Um, we need to confirm it with a sonographer who's not here right now. She'll be here, she's on call, it was the middle of the night. Um, but, but you just hold tight. 
And so we're sitting in the, in the hospital room for at least two hours, I'm not sure how long it was, it's dark, and we're just waiting. And at some point, Mary Elizabeth, uh, I shouldn't have looked at you, <laughs> at some point she leans over to me and she says, hey, can we sing? And I go, I'm in ministry at the time, I wanna say, no. <laughs> I don't wanna sing. She said, no, I wanna, I wanna, can you turn on worship music? So we turned on, she wanted to listen to Good, Good Father. And back then I didn't understand why, and I don't even know that she fully understood why, but I know now, she wanted to listen to that song because singing that song to God reminded her that he could be trusted. That despite the circumstances of our lives in the immediate, our future was secure. To remember that God is a good father and to remember that that night, even though it didn't seem like it, it seemed like a trap. We're stuck at the Red Sea. We can sing one day. He's led us there by his steadfast love. Our God can be trusted. Look at verse 19. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, also the sister of Moses, but again, he's not the point, so his name doesn't show up. She takes a tambourine in her hand and all the women go out with her tambourines and dancing. It's a parade, essentially, victory parade. Verse 21, and Miriam sings to the Lord, a familiar chorus, same as verse one. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He saved us. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. Our enemy has been defeated. All of Israel sings this chorus about the salvation of the Lord because saved people love to sing. And church, if Israel's response to God after being rescued from Egypt is to sing and dance with joy to God, how much more should we who've been set free from the power and sin and death redeemed by the cross, how much more should we Right? And Israel's song, we read earlier, and I'll wrap up here, and I'm going long. Israel's song is motivated, we saw in chapter 14 at the end there, it's motivated by the fact that they saw their enemy was defeated. Right? They saw the great work the Lord had done, the enemy laid at their feet, and they respond and sing, and that's what motivated them to sing, that they feared the Lord, they believed him, they planted their feet deep in this reality that God has led us by steadfast love, he's trustworthy then, he's trustworthy now. That was their evidence. What is our evidence? What motivates us to sing? It's the cross of Christ in an empty tomb. That the full cup of wrath, the full cup of the wrath of God towards sin was poured out onto him so that you and I could pass through the waters from death into life. Church, we've been saved and saved people love to sing. The Lord is our strength, he is our song, he is our salvation. Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful we are thankful for your grace and your mercy to us. We read this story and we always think of ourselves as the Israelites, but in reality, we're the Egyptians. We're the enemy, were it not for your steadfast love. What we deserve is to drown, to receive the full cup of your wrath because of our sin, and yet, but God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, you made us alive together with Christ. You love us despite the fact that we do not deserve it. You love us because of Jesus. Help us, God, to see that we've been saved. Help us to sing. Remind us that we have been invited in to participate in the work that you're doing. And you can be trusted. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.